Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. everybody this is Sandra Beck and I'm so excited today today's the no show it's not about not showing up it's about what happens when we say no or when we hear the word no in particular saying no to our kids or our kids saying no to us is usually ripe for some big conflagration in fact I just had one minutes before coming on the show because I had to say no 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 and my kids and my dad said no 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 and no means conflict no means hurt feelings no means all sorts of things that we never intend when no can just simply mean no so we're bringing on parenting expert Trish Wilkinson today and she wrote a book called the brain stages you'll want to check it out it's a great book she also has a website by the same name and we're going to talk today about the word no Trish why is the word no cause so many problems with so many people I think for so many people, when they hear the word no, it just kind of trips the cortisol hormone, the stress hormone in their limbic system. It just trips the emotion system in our brains. And and the thing is, it's interesting because, you know, I was thinking about this because we talked about doing this show and I was thinking about this, how the Japanese have a whole, you know, they very seldom will just use the word no culturally. They actually have 17 ways to say yes. And you rarely get a straight no because, you know, there are so many people living in a small, you know, area because Japan is small, you know, landmass. And so like one of the ways they say no is it is difficult or because of the complexity or whatever, they won't necessarily just say the word no. And I thought, you know, that's a cultural thing that's been going on for thousands of years in Japan. Um, and I thought, how, how wise of them? <laughs> because you're right, it does trip something in our brains and it makes kids feel like, well, all of us, if we're excited about something and we say, hey, what do you think about doing this or that? And the other person just shuts us down and says, no. You know, it's just like, oh, it, it just like, we're all pumped up. It, it's, it's like, you know, all of a sudden the air's let out of our balloon, only we're not flying all over the room. We're just sitting there deflating. Right. Right. So, so, and you know, it's, and here's the interesting thing. So Carol Dweck has been a doctor at Stanford for a long time. She's the one who kind of originated the whole idea of the growth mons- mindset versus a fixed mindset. Right. And basically when we say no to kids, it's a fixed mindset. No, just kibosh. We just put the kibosh on whatever it was that they're saying to us, even when they thought it was important. And yet as adults, we say, well, so what are we supposed to say to our kids then? Right. Right. (laughs) Um, So I have a couple of ideas about that because the growth mindset basically says we're going to look at whatever the circumstance is. And instead of putting ourselves into a box, we're going to look at it as we're going to be able to stretch and figure this out. 
which is not only huge for kids, it's huge for adults and business or, you know, just anything in our lives, looking at our lives as a means of growth instead of being stuck wherever we are in this, in this fixed mindset, right? So like one of the things I like to tell parents is um, it depends on the situation. So if you're, so here's an example. If we give our kids the boundaries ahead of time, like in my family, um, we talk to the kids ahead of time about um, eating, for example. So we would say to them, you never have to eat everything on your plate. That is not a requirement. You just need to know though, if you don't eat everything on your plate, then there's no dessert. And that's gonna have to be okay because your body needs all the vitamins and minerals and fiber and all of that stuff that's in the vegetables and the meat and you know the things that are on your plate for mm -hmm. dinner. And it doesn't need a darn thing in that cookie, <laughs> right. that cookie or that ice cream or whatever that dessert is, is extra. It's recreation and it's not typically great for your body. So if we were to tell you, oh, sure. Yeah. Just go ahead and eat that dessert after you haven't had a healthy dinner. What we're basically doing is we're substituting the calories for the healthy stuff for the unhealthy stuff. And that, you know, kids are shiny and new, so they don't show that right away, right. you know, the effects of that, but things in their behavior and how well they sleep and, and, you know, their moods and all kinds of just little subtle differences that parents don't even notice that affects them. So, so the point that I'm making is that if kids know the boundaries ahead of time, when we would say, our kids would say, do I have to eat all of, all of my green beans? I really don't want to eat my green beans. And instead of, you know, can I still have dessert? And instead of saying no and getting into an argument, right. we'd, we'd say to them, well, your body needs what's in those green beans and you know the rule. So do you have to eat your green beans? Absolutely not. You never have to eat anything you don't want to on your plate, but you know the rule. And then we change the subject. We wouldn't even remind them in the rule, you know, if you don't eat that, uh, you know, the good stuff on your plate, then you can't have dessert. We didn't even do that. We just, it was a matter of health. So, so because they knew what the rules were ahead of time and they knew why, we didn't have to say no. They'd say, can I have dessert? And we'd say, you know, you need what's in the green beans. You don't need what's in that, you know, that other stuff, you know, the rule and then, and then go on our merry way to talk about something else. And so we just had pleasant meal times all the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, our best memories are meal times, you know, with the kids growing up. Trish, I'm just going to stop us for a minute because I really want to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor today is Honey. Now, Honey is spelled H-O-N-E-Y, and you can find it at joinhoney.com slash militarymom. That's joinhoney.com slash militarymom. And Honey is a free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. You know, we all shop online, and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout, but thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past and honey supports over 30 
thousand stores online. And they range in everything from tech to gaming products to popular fashion brands, even food delivery. So imagine you're shopping at your favorite site. When you check out, the honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. And if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. What did Honey save me money on? It saved me money on this cool little blender kit that I wanted. And I wanted the... I wanted the one that was had all the pieces, had a recipe book, it it plugged in and it charged so I could throw it in my gym bag and and drag it around with me and the kids and not have to worry about getting a plug. And when I applied the coupon, it saved me $17.50. So that was really great because I could use that money for something else or I could save it for something that I wanted in the future. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and it installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash militarymom. That's joinhoney.com slash militarymom. And remember, Honey is spelled H-O-N-E-Y. Now, Trish, we were talking about no and the power of no and why no causes so many problems with our kids. Instead of saying no, there are other things that we can do. And one of the biggest things to me is explaining the situation to a child. So for example, um, your child really wants to go somewhere and you know, your immediate reaction is no, you can't do that. We have some, you know, because you know, there's someone else where they have to be or whatever and if we validate what they say ahead of time as something that they want to do, and right. then we explain the situation, then usually they're, they're okay with it and it doesn't deflate them and you don't end up in a fight. Does that make sense? Like, um, can I go to, you know, Keith's house after dinner to play or whatever, or, you know, and you happen to know that they still have homework to do and, <laughs> You know, there are some other things that have to be done. So, so for example, in this example, I would say something like, guy, you know what? I, I know you really have a good time with Keith. That would be really fun. The only thing is, is that we, you know, is that I did, did I see your homework? Is your, is your homework finished to put it, you know, can I see your homework or, or whatever? And then pretty much the, subject just pretty much gets changed. Does that make sense? Because they start seeing on their own, oh, if, you know, I'm not going to get my homework done if I go to my friend's house or whatever. So if they start seeing it on their own or, um, guy, that'd be fun. That sounds like a great thing to do, except I still need to go to the store and, and we need to go pick up this thing and run this errand and that errand. And by the time we get home, I think it's going to be dinner time. So you haven't said no, but you've explained to them what's going on. And so they just look at it like, oh, yeah. Hmm. And they come to the conclusion themselves without you even saying no. Well, and that's a very powerful position to be in because your kid also feels empowered. Right. Because they have come to the conclusion on their own. Right. And it's not just a nope, sorry, too bad for you. (laughs) Right. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, life is busy, especially in our current, you know, the way life is right now. Um, and maybe not just right now, but in the last couple of generations. And, 
you know, in our society, there are so many things going on all the time that it's just kind of shorthand to be able to say no. But then when we say no and end up in an argument and, you know, whining kids and all of that, and we can avoid all that stuff just by saying, you know, just by kind of thinking out loud, well, let's see, guy, yeah, I, I can see why that would be really fun for you to go to your friend's house. Let's see. Well, we still have to do this and that and this. Um, gosh, and by that time, it's going to be dinner. Right. <laughs> you know, and then they'll say, oh, I guess today's not a good. And then, and then we can even say, but, you know, tomorrow might be better. What do you think about tomorrow? And you give them another alternative. So that's another thing you can do is give your kid another alternative. If whatever they're asking you isn't going to work at that moment, when will it work? Right. Right. And, and getting them to think about different options and getting them to troubleshoot too, because sometimes when I've used your technique, the kids will come up with a third like compromise that I never even thought of. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of times we don't give our kids that kind of credit. It's amazing what they come up with on their own when we create that opening for them to do that. Right. Right. And it's just a matter, but this takes time and this takes for you to be in the right frame of mind too, as a parent. I think some, in some way, I think that's true. I will not say that I was never a parent that said no. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think, I think we all do that at some point or another, especially when we're harried, you know, when we're rushed, we have to get things done, whatever. But I will say, I did realize after a while, especially with our oldest child, that it actually saved me time to do the kind of thinking out loud and going, yeah, that sounds like it would be really fun. Let's say we have to do this and this and this. I don't know. What about tomorrow? You know, or, or what about Thursday or whatever? Usually she would, it, that took so much less time because then there wouldn't be any arguing and That's then right. there wouldn't, you know, <laughs> so so it would actually save time in the long run. But I think sometimes we do what our knee jerk reaction is because we're, you know, we're already harried and trying to get to something and it's just not necessarily top of mind to be intentional. But the more we practice these kinds of things, Sandra, honestly, I think they become more of a habit. It's just like tying your shoes. When you first learn to tie your shoes, it takes some real concerted effort. But after you do it for a while, you can, you can do that without even really thinking about it. And I think some of these things that we talk about on these shows are like that. At first, it just seems like so much more work. Right, it does. <laughs> um, but, but then after a while, after you practice it a few times and it becomes more habit and you're getting the positive reward because your kids are responding better and they're responding to you instead of reacting and arguing and, you know, being, making you miserable, <laughs> making you feel like you need a vacation um, from them. You know, when, when things get more pleasant and you're practicing some of these things, eventually, because you get the rewards, they become more of a habit. So the trick is, is to try a few of these things more than once and be intentional in the beginning. And eventually you don't have to necessarily be as intentional anymore. They're more of a habit. Well, and I think the kids also, you know, we, we teach people how to treat us. So when we teach the kids that, you know, it's, it's, 
I'm going to try to work things out for the greater good, but that not always going to happen. So, um, you know, disappointment is part of life. You know, that was one of the things that I had to teach my kids early on when they were little because they were the product of a broken home. So they had to go back and forth, which means if you were going to dad's house that weekend, that means, you know, you're not going to see friends. You're not going to so-and-so's birthday party because, you know, it's too far a drive or it's too far of this. And I think, introducing your child to disappointment and how to manage disappointment earlier rather than later was one of the silver linings that really helped my kids. I wouldn't say it was great during the teen years, but it helped them. Nothing's great during the teen years, but, um, but it really did help them understand that sometimes you say, no, it's not because they're in trouble. It's not because you don't love them. It's not because you, like my son said to me, you really enjoy this. Don't you, you really enjoy telling me no. And, and it's funny because for whatever reason, they don't, th- you know, they feel like we're not on their side. I remember my daughter, you know, we did neurofeedback with her because she was ADHD and we had gotten a brain map done and realized that her brain was moving too fast in areas instead of too slow. So if we had put her on uppers like they do with most kids who are um, presenting in a way that most ADHD people present, it could have been a disaster. So instead we took her to neurofeedback and she said, well, you're just doing this so that I'll be easier to live with. And, and so that, you know, it'll make you look good. And we're like, wow, really? (laughs) I'm driving you an hour to the place where we had to go and an hour back. I'm giving up my entire afternoon and part of my evening so that I can do this for you because I know that you're going to need to learn how to control your own brain and be able to function in society and medication isn't going to work for you. (laughs) Right. You know, so, so, and I'm doing this for myself. How, How do you figure? But that, but that was her attitude. That was her understanding at the time. You know, now she's an adult, she's 28 and she laughs and goes, mom, thanks for being so patient with me. <laughs> and she said, I know, you know, that was really helpful that we did that neurofeedback back then. And I have tools to be able to, you know, feel when these things are coming up or when I'm losing focus and what to do to get focus again. And she said, you know, I learned all these tools as a result of doing that, that, you know, I wouldn't have figured out otherwise. And, you know, now that I've done more research on my own and even thought about medication and finding out about it and real and taking the brain map to other professionals, they're like, yeah, you can't go on medication. It's a really good thing. Your mom didn't put you on medication. So, um, but, and so I'm here to tell all the parents who are listening, who have teenagers, it really gets better. (laughs) People used to tell me that when my, when my kids were going through their teens and the younger one was fairly easy in her teens, but the older one was super difficult. And I used to think, I don't know, are we ever going to get along? I love her so much, but I don't know if she's ever going to trust me, but she totally trusts me now. And we get along great and we're really close. And, you know, it, <clears throat> and I'm just telling parents that now in case they're in the thick of it, because sometimes it, you know, it's just really hard with teenagers. And, but I'm telling you, if you don't tell teenagers, no, if you do what we just talked about, acknowledge what they asked you, 
kind of think out loud about, you know, what's going on and, and why that wouldn't work without saying no and letting them come to their own conclusion and then giving them another alternative, you're going to live in a lot more peaceful household with that teenager. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and I think, you know, it's so hard to, it's so hard to know when you're like, you know, we call it in the trenches, you know, you're in the trenches, you know, you're parenting. And that's why sometimes taking a class or reading a book or stepping outside of the situation can make a huge difference. Or just asking people who know, you know, who, who have been there. And it's not like, and I'm not talking like about when your grandmother says, you know, when we were raising kids, we did it this way, especially in a couple of generations, things have changed quite a bit. So, so things aren't the same as they used to be. But if you're talking to somebody who's a professional who's been there, who, you know, has specific tools and things that we know work, scientifically speaking, because a lot of this has been backed up by research now, that's a whole different thing. There's no reason in this day and age for people to keep having to reinvent the wheel. Right. And I know that's one of the reasons I waited so long to figure all this stuff out and to get help and start asking around and dealing with it because they didn't have a lot of what we have now as far as parent coaches and, you know, the research, a lot of the research is brand new in the last, you know, five to 10 years. And the thing is, is that there, there are things that we know now that we didn't know before, and there's no reason, you know, we have to teach kids how to go to the bathroom and how to use a fork and how to, you know, do everything else. Why do we think we should be just born knowing how to parent? Right. Which, which is such an important job and kids are all different. So they're going to be different situations. And, you know, anyway, I, I just, that's, that's how I got into this parenting thing in the first place. Cause I thought nobody should go through what I went through and, you know, not knowing what to do. And I didn't get help for a long time because I thought, well, I've been a teacher for years and years. Kids are my business. I should know how to do this. Right. And it turns out sometimes when it's your own kids, you know, it's hard to figure it out. <laughs> right. It's very hard to figure it out, you know, and it's, it's, and you're emotionally involved in a way that you're not when it's not your kid. Oh, isn't no, when, that it's true? Not, when it's not my kid, I'm like, yeah, just tell him this and get over it. Like, you know, <laughs> but you know, you're not that, you're not that parent. You're not emotionally involved with that kid. And you're not the one that's just been called the worst parent in the world. And I think that's one of our deepest fears as parents is we really don't know what we're doing most of the time. So when your kid is mad at you and you know, you're not sure what to do and they're throwing a hissy fit, it just, it's like the perfect storm that comes together. Right. And you just feel like if I were bigger, stronger, faster, or more intelligent, I should know what to do in this circumstance. And, and that's not necessarily true. <laughs> you know, I, and I don't, if you haven't had experience with a certain thing or whatever, you may, you may not have the answer to that thing. And that's, and that's okay. Well, and that's the other thing too. I think as parents, it's important to give ourselves grace and to give our kids grace. Yes. Because, because the bottom line is none of us are perfect. We're all doing the best we can. 
And, and it's okay if our kids make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, we can come back to our kids and say, you know what? I blew it because that way they get to see that mistakes are not the end of the world. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, that's one of the things like the era of Google has, has made it so that, you know, we think that a mistake is the end of the world. Oh, I should know that. Well, no, Google has like, you know, 85 billion entries. So no, you, you don't have to know that. And big shocker, not everything you read on the internet is, you know, all that accurate. So, (laughs) I mean, you, you have to really vet and look at when I was writing brain stages, I had to be really careful to get on good sources and look at good studies, even studies, you have to look at sample sizes and, you know, populations that they're working with. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it than just reading an article. Right. So, so that's why I think it's helpful to find people who can help you if you're struggling with something. And, and the thing that we're talking about, about not just telling kids no, really well works well if you start doing that when you have little kids because I know we're talking a lot about teenagers but if you start doing that with a two-year-old your teenage your your two-year-old number one they won't tell you no as much because you know how little kids are always like no (laughs) and it's because they hear no a lot but if we use other alternatives like we say wow I can really see how you'd want to do that hmm well we have this and this let's see if we can do this at this time instead or, or whatever, um, whatever alternative it's going to be. Well, you want that sugar cereal for breakfast or you want a donut for breakfast. Hmm. Well, we're out of donuts. I wish I could just go in and get a donut for you right now, but we don't have any of those. How about if we make you some oatmeal instead, or how about if we peel a hard boiled egg for you or, you know, whatever, giving the, giving them a, maybe even a choice between two things instead. And then there isn't all the argument with the two-year-old and they start learning about alternatives really young. So by the time they get to their teenage years, they're actually a little easier to deal with. Right. You know, I, I think it's, it's amazing how, you know, training. And I, you know, when I was a young mother, I took a lot of, I took a lot of flack for the kid, the things that I had to make my kids do. And I say it that way, because in a perfect world, I would have probably allowed them to be older than four years old and having them sort laundry, but there were things they could do. They could sort, they could do these things. And, you know, in a perfect world, do they have to? No, but because I was a single mom and I was caring for my mom and my dad and I'm working full time, like you figure it out, you put it away. And I used to have these sleepovers and it was really funny because the sleepovers required the kids to clean the house before they left. So I tell this story a lot because my sons are close in age, a couple of years apart. So they had, you know, friends, um, you know, friends come over, they might have five or six boys and they'd make a mess of the house. So before you got picked up in the morning, if you're, if the first kid was going to be picked up by 11 o'clock at 10 o'clock, everybody's up, you're vacuuming, you're doing dishes, you're folding up the bedding, you know, or putting stuff in the wash. And that didn't come back to haunt me till um, about, oh, maybe, maybe five years later. 
And my one friend said, how did Gus learn how to do laundry at your house? Because he was in, in their household and no judgment, you know, no judgment, but in her household, um, you did not go to have to do your own laundry till you went to high school. So when you went to high school, you took over your own laundry. That was their family thing. So the mom decided to sit down and have this big explanation about how to do laundry. And he's like, oh yeah, I've been doing laundry for years, but only at Miss Sandra's house, which (laughs) (laughs) did not go over so well. But the point being is that- I don't know why. I mean, I I don't think you did anything wrong. And I mean- kids are capable of so many things. And I think, um, I think in our society, we want them to be able to be kids, but, but it's hard to figure out where that balance is. Yes. And, and, you know, for them to do things for themselves, because here's the thing, our job is to eventually work ourselves out of a job. Yes. And on the one hand, we want to do that. We want them to become successful, independent, um, kids who do well in our society. Right. But at the other, but on the other hand, we feel a little sad because we don't necessarily want to give up that, that role of, you know, and, and I'm the first one to admit it. I mean, my kids are really independent. They're successful adults now and I miss them, you know, because we don't live in the same state anymore. So we talk on the phone all the time and we text and we see each other as much as we can but it's not the same. So, I mean, I understand that kind of push pull, but at the same time, we really want to be, um, we, we really want to be raising our kids in a way that's going to work ourselves out of a job so that they're not still on our couch at, you know, 28 or 30 years old. <laughs> sure. Or they're, you know, not, not like, I always think of what my mom said to me um, when I got married and, you know, was thinking about having kids. And she said, Here's the thing. You are going to have somebody's husband or wife someday. Like you're raising somebody's husband or wife someday. So the most loving thing you can do as a parent is teach their kids, you know, how to be a full partner, how to be a full, you know, producing member of society, you know, so that, that, you know, that's your job, you know, yes, your job is to love them, but more importantly, your job is to, to raise them so that they are able to get what they want out of life. Well, and isn't that part of loving them? I I think so. When, when you think about it, that's part of loving them. So if we're, you know, when we tell our kids no, and we just cut them off to me, for me, I realized at some point that that was a lost opportunity. Does that make sense? If if we just say no to our kids and we don't explain why, and they don't, and they don't know the boundaries ahead of time. And so that we can use an alternative and, um, you you understand what I'm saying? It's a lost opportunity to teach them about communication and, and having a growth mindset. Well, this won't work at the moment. So how about if we do it at this time instead, or, you know, looking at it in a way that, that can expand to make whatever they want to do a possibility instead of just flat out. No. Right. And which, you know, the Japanese have known for thousands of years. (laughs) Right. Right. And I think a lot of it 
and you know, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Trish, because this could this could you know woo you know cause a big big kind of fireball. But <laughs> how the parent accepts the word no has a lot to do with how the kid learns to accept no. And I say this from the auspices of a single mom who has a very conflict loving ex-husband and co-parent loves to say no loves to say no no is about power no is about control no is about me being better than you no is about you being a terrible mother and my new wife is better than you like all those you know all those things are kind of wrapped into the word no and then you look at my side and no to me is always disappointment, frustration. It gets into my ego. It gets into my psyche. It gets, it hurts my feelings. And, you know, so my poor kids have, you know, two diametrically opposed parents, you know, with respect to the word no. So it's no surprise that no would cause all sorts of conflicting uh, issues with kids. And what I have found, I almost never use the word no, because I feel it has just too hot a button to push. And I will go right to like what we can do. You know, you taught me this, go right to what we can do. So if right. they say, you know, can I have uh, James over today for a play date? I will just say, well, you could have him over on Sunday afternoon if that works. Right. So you so give them an alternative something right away. Jump right to the, you don't even get involved with no, because no is like, well, why not? And then there's blame and there's issues and there's defending. So if you just say what you can do, then a lot of times that works better. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but you know, like when it comes to bedtime, you know, like, you know, can I stay up till eight 30? I might say, well, bedtime is eight 30 and how about 8.05? And we were jokingly, like we were going back and forth as opposed to 8.03, but it was fun. It wasn't negative. And so trying to get, and the one thing I would do with my kids too, and I, sometimes I'm mad at it, but sometimes I really like it. So you can give me your <laughs> parenting opinion on this. I say to them, if I say no, or you think I'm wrong, if you can present it to me in a clear and respectful argument that I can understand, then I'll give it a chance to change my mind. And I have raising two future lawyers or filibusters or politicians because now <laughs> they come to me every time I say, you know, let's do this or let's do something else. They'll say, and they start the same thing. They go, mom, consider this. <laughs> because that's you know I taught them to say consider this and you know sometimes Trish I'm wrong and sometimes they make a good argument as to why like I always had a thing with eighth grade eighth grade bedtime ninth grade ninth grade 9 p.m bedtime 10 10 you know 11 11 and my younger son said to me consider this I'm valedictorian in my class. I go to my dance classes. I do all my chores. I'm in eighth grade. I would like you to consider me staying up till nine, not eight. Huh. Okay, well, that gives me something to think about. You know, what was, it had me examine my childhood paradigm, which was eight, 8 p.m., 9, 9 p.m., 10, 10 p.m., 11, 11 p.m. Right, because it was how you were raised. Right. And a lot of times that is how we raise our children, you know, like our, and we may even be upset with our parents for doing certain things. And we end up doing the same thing right? <laughs> because right. that's, because that's what we know. And sometimes doing the same thing, it didn't work for us. 
and it's not working for our child. And if your child can come to you and say, look, I have, you know, this, this, and this going for me, can you consider this? You know, that, that may, and what a great skill to give them because that way it, you know, when they have a boss someday, or if they have an issue with the teacher, then they can talk to their teacher logically. I mean, there's, because most people, if a child gives them a reasonable, you know, premise for something, I'm not even going to say argument. If they just said, because it's not that you were wrong, your idea came from a certain basis and your child said, you know, I do this, this, and this, and I would like you to consider allowing me to stay up later. That doesn't make you wrong. It makes you be able to look at, and what a great skill that he can present something in a way that can allow you to think about something without putting you on the defensive, where you can say, you know what? You made some good points. Let's try that. Let's try that and see if it works. If you can still be as successful and go to bed at nine as you have been going to bed at eight, you know, let's, let's try it out, see what happens. Well, and what I found was it was fine. (laughs) It didn't, it it actually was. The roof didn't cave in. (laughs) Right. And it was actually easier for me to run my evenings because I knew he was empowered to take care of his bedtime. And, you know, the issue of, you know, whether or not it would roll back. Cause I said, look, if I find out you're staying up too late, it rolls back to eight o'clock. You know, there was a consequence on the end of it too, you know, and that I think is a big, you know, uh, like when my kids wanted cell phones, I said, all right, you keep an A average. And if you get something outside of an A, you need to talk to me about why, because, you know, there's considerations. I'm having trouble. I'm struggling, but my kids are bright. So they should be able to get an A without too much trouble. If there's something else going on, then we need to talk about it, but they needed to keep the A average in order to justify me paying for their cell phone. And fair is fair because that's who they are. I mean, somebody else's child, they may not, you know, their kids may not be those kind of students. Maybe they have to get B's or, you know, whatever, but, but right, but whatever is, it is, is whatever their whatever you know your kid can do, you know, they should be able to do in order to get a reward. Because like I have families who give cell phones away like they're candy. Oh, every kid gets a cell phone. Like that's your biggest leverage these days as a parent. You know, that's like you take the cell phone, you're master of the universe. You're Darth Vader. You know, that cuts them <laughs> off from their friends. It's like Darth Vader. <laughs> yes, but it's like heroin for kids. You yeah. know, that cell phone is everything. So don't give them a cell phone willy nilly. If your kid listening to the show and your kids are just coming up, have them do something that would better the family, better the child to earn their cell phone. Now, my kids had a cell phone as early as fourth grade because they would go over to their dads, but I still had a caveat. They had to read a certain number of books each month and show me which book they read and talk to me about it in order to earn their cell phone. Like you can give them goals that will win for everybody to use your cell phone as leverage because you know quite frankly you know cell phones are not an appendage even though kids think they are and they are a gift and they are expensive 
And if you know that there's a consequence, like I can't tell you how many friends of mine, kids have lost their phone. They've broken their phone. They, you know, leave it at this person's house. It's because it has no value. Free has no value. If you have that phone because you get an A average or a B average, or, you know, you do your chores 30 days, you know, of doing your chores without any lip and that you earn your cell phone, that's no different than currency as an adult. I agree with you. Well, and getting back to the no thing and you're allowing your child to present you with a different bedtime, you made it so that he wasn't going to argue about getting ready for bed anymore. Right. I mean, he's like, okay, I get to go to bed at nine. I'm going to get myself ready. I'm going to handle all this myself so that she's not even going to look at it. Cause I don't want to go back to eight o'clock. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's a motivator whenever we give another alternative to saying no and we let them present their case and we make a new decision, it's a motivator for them to keep their agreements too. Right. And, and that's such a great life skill to teach them not only how to communicate, but, but how to get their needs met, how to let us know what their perceived needs are. And when we just say no, we just cut them off so that you know, they don't learn any of those things back to the lost opportunity. And when we just say no, then we don't find out what's going on with them either. Whereas when we listen, a lot of times there are tons of other things going on underneath something that happened at school, something they've been thinking about something, you know, whatever. And if we just say no and cut them off back into that fixed mindset, instead of, you know, instead of talking to them about it or saying, well, this and this is going on. Hmm. So how about this day instead of that day, getting back to telling them what you can do instead of what you can't do, then you give them all kinds of opportunities to learn, to develop their emotional quotient and social skills. And, you know, communication is so important. And so many people have such a hard time figuring out how to do it. And they're just like small tweaks, little things that we can do that make a big difference. And then I've been working with parents on just these small tools to use, you know, these small tips to use for how they talk to their kids. And they're saying, you know, they not only don't argue as much anymore, I've learned so much more. I mean, we're just having so much more fun. I'm just enjoying them so much more. And that, and this is one of those things in the alternative to, you know, the no show, (laughs) the alternatives to saying no, make a huge difference in how well you get along and just enjoying each other and learning more about each other. Absolutely. And it's how much do you enjoy parenting? You know, when I was newly divorced, Trish, and even sometimes now I'm like, I really hate parenting. You know, I wanted to have kids so bad. I was advocating for children's charities for 20 years before I had my own kids. You know, I was well thought out. I had, you know, lots of money in the bank. I had a house. I had, I had put everything together for the best family I could, could possibly uh, create. And then I wake up one morning and my ex-husband gets out of bed and says, I don't want this life anymore. And he's gone. And all of a sudden, big tailspin, divorce, property, new, new girlfriend, new wife, you know, before I could even catch my breath. And um, what I hated most was feeling like a bad parent or hurt because my kid was mad at me, especially Trish, if I only got 
a few hours a week with my kid. Because this is what people of divorce don't recognize. The kid lives with you. Like in my case, they would go over to their, the dad lived down the street with the new wife, which was handy from a travel standpoint, but excruciating on every other turn. So the kids would go back and forth, two days here, two days there, two days here, two days there, weekend here, you know, like that. And so what happens is your kids go to school all day, then they have soccer, and then you have dinner, and then there's homework. So maybe in that day with your kids, you get an hour of quality time, maybe a half an hour of quality time, maybe no quality of time. So you end up with this you know, and then they got to go to dad's and they're gone. So when you have to tell your kid no, or discipline them or say something to them that you know is going to light a firecracker under them, doing that in the one hour of quality time is excruciating. Yeah. I, yeah, I bet <laughs> that's, yeah, because in and, and, and many more and more people are are splitting time with kids, and you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine where she's doing that, and their their son is almost five now, and she said, you know, he's coming home to her and saying, "I just want to stay here, mommy. Yes. I don't want to go there. I just want to stay here." And she said, "Trish, I don't want to tell him no, right." That is, you know, it makes him feel like I don't want him. I don't want to pit his dad and me, you know, she said, it's just so difficult because he's a little guy and he, all he knows is that he's happier when he's here and, you know, and home and, and because she has two children from a previous marriage. So, you know, he gets to be with his brothers and, you know, whatever. He's the only child at his dad's house. You know, there are just all these little facts. It's just different. And I can tell you from, you know, doing this for 16 years on my own, when kids are young, when kids are sick, when kids are stressed, we're biologically hardwired to want mom. And that could mean the stepmom is the most wonderful mom in the world. And dad could be the best dad in the world. But most kids, I'm not saying every kid, most kids fall down, they get hurt. Who do they want? Mom. Who do they want when they have a broken heart? They don't go to their dad and spill their guts. They talk to mom. Now, that's not saying moms are any better or worse on this, but if you look back to our survival, our very survival as human beings, the dads were more often out hunting and collecting things for the family, while who did most of the nurturing and the caregiving? So right. we're hardwired to go back to mom. You know, when my kids were sick, one of the biggest fights my ex-husband would have is he did not understand why my kids wanted me when they were sick. They wanted to crawl in my bed and snuggle up with me, have me put a cold cloth on their head and soothe them back to sleep. Why? Because they're kids. And, I didn't, and, you're, and you're mom. And I'm mom. <laughs> You know, and the stepmom never understood why the kids wouldn't come to her. It's not their mom. Like, it's nothing personal. And I think if you're a stepmom out there and your kid, your stepkid falls down and bangs his head and doesn't want to go to you, it's for no other reason than 
your biological kid would go to you or your adopted kid that you raised since birth would go to you. It's just the way we're hardwired. And I don't know in 16 years, I have never figured out and I have never talked to a therapist or a constant. And I very rarely say never Trish, but I have never had someone give me a good justifiable reason why that kid is wrong for wanting to go to his mom. It's the same reason when a kid hits puberty, especially boys, they don't want to talk to mom about that. We're going to talk (laughs) to dad, right? Right. I mean, you laugh at this as a parent, but you know that I speak the truth that there's some biological hardwiring, emotional, whatever it is, you can't rewire the kids. So parents have to learn to rewire themselves, to not take it personally. You know, when my kid went over to one of the girlfriend's house, he really liked her, Trish. And that was hard for me because she was fun and she was younger and she didn't have to work all the time. And, you know, so she was just fun. And he's like, yeah, I can't wait to go over to dad's because so-and-so is going to be there. And, you know, I love her. And what I heard was you love her more than me because I'm a single mom and I'm tired all the time. Like I put all my stuff on there. Right. right. And one of my friends said something to me. She said, isn't that wonderful? Your son has someone else to love him. That changed my perception because all I saw was he's not, you know, he's not with me. He loves this other person. Maybe he's going to love her more. You know, all the normal things that go across a parent's head in a situation like this. But if you can look at your kid and go, okay, one more person to love him. That's for his best. We all want what's best for our kids. And the other thing is to, to, if you're the parent that the kid doesn't want to be with because he's sick, he's hungry, he's tired, or he just wants to be home. That's another thing is where does your, where does your separated, divorced child identify as home? My ex-husband moved out, new house, new place, new wife, new stepkids, new, new, new. So where is home? Anybody listening to the show today can identify if I say Trish, where do you call home? Where's your home? Right. And then, and the kids are going to identify where their home is, where it's familiar and where they're comfortable. I mean, still, you can go to Bali and I can get you one of those cool cabanas, you know, that sits out on an Island and the floor (laughs) is clear and you can see the fish in there and I can give you the best food in the world. But what's going to happen after two weeks, you're going to want to go where home. I want to go home. Home. (laughs) And that's my biggest beef with the court systems in their, their zeal to be fair, 50, 50, give the kid 50 here, 50 here. You know, if I said to you, Trish, you spend 50% of your time in your office and 50% of your time at home. How are you going to feel about that? When you're sick and you have to go to the office, when you have work to do and you have to go home, that's what divorced kids feel like. They've lost, you know, their ability to navigate things and they've lost their ability to say, I want to go home because home and there may not be any home they recognize anymore. I was very grateful to have my kids uh, stay in the home. I could I was the breadwinner, so I afforded the home so they didn't have to change anything here. But many kids have to go to a new home on both sides and then where's home. Right. If your kid is under the age of 10, most likely the kid's going to identify home as where mom is. 
Yep. And whether, whether we like it or not. And sometimes like I've coached some parents and been in some cases where the dad has always been the active parent and the mom has not, there's mental illness, drug addiction, several different kinds of issues. And you're right. Still those kids, because it's an anthropological thing. It's how humans are wired. Still those kids really want to be with mom when they're sick, even though they're, their biological mom isn't the nurturing type. Right, she's she not doesn't capable. snuggle with them. She's not, yeah, whatever. They still want to go home and be with their mom. Right. <laughs> and that's a good thing for a step parent. You know, for many years, I wasn't a step parent. I was the girlfriend and I knew the kids. And, you know, you would think the kids would be okay with it because two of them were 25 and one of them was 16, you know, well old enough to be. Um, and I had very frank conversations with them that I have no interest in being their mom. You know, I have no interest in, in, you know, I'll be your friend, you know, call me Sam, you know, don't call me anything other than, you know, what it is because they needed to know that I wasn't here to take their mom's place because when a stepmom tries to take the place of the mom or there's competition that the kids are going to like me more. And then all of a sudden it becomes about a fight between the two moms, which is what I see a lot in my friendship groups it's the moms it's not the dads it's the moms yeah because the moms do most of the caregiving and in, and you know I had a, a terrible situation with with one of my ex-husband's partners because she would cut holes in my kids clothes that I would buy and say oh they're ripped they couldn't wear them oh my goodness so, okay so that is not a healthy person that your husband was with he's no. not still with her is he no he's not So, you know, so, you know, these things that come up and this is where, you know, as a single mom saying no to your kids, sometimes people would say to me, like, you're too hard on them. You're giving them all these chores. And then they're like, and then they would criticize me sometimes that because, you know, when you're in the same neighborhood and people talk and all this stuff gets around or the kids talk and say, my mom let me stay up till midnight last night watching TV. What he didn't say was. He didn't get home from his dad's till seven o'clock. I haven't seen him. And we watched two movies together and snuggled the whole time, which to me was more important than going to bed at eight o'clock. So, you know, there's all these considerations, you know, so before you criticize somebody for saying no, or before you criticize yourself for saying no to you, to something, or how about, no, there's not going to be a bedtime tonight. We're going to go and we're going to watch Pitch Perfect. We're going to watch one, two, and three, and we'll figure out, you know, how to get to school on time tomorrow, because we need this. We need this time together. And that's the thing about these parenting rules, Trish, is there's so many different little kind of caveats. Oh, right. Because everybody's situations are different and all kids are different. That's, that's why so many of the things that we've talked about on, on all these shows are just little tweaks in conversation and stuff, because, you know, you have to do whatever is going to work. I mean, I've never said to you, oh no, well, you can't have your kids go to bed at midnight for any circumstance, right? (laughs) you know, because, because things come up, there are things that are happening and they may be tired at school they probably aren't going to learn as well that next day, but for whatever reason, whatever's going on in your family or with them personally, I mean, they may just need you to snuggle with them for whatever reason. So, you know, flexibility is the name of the game. I mean, I don't think there is any one way 
to be a parent to a child anyway, especially because, you know, kids aren't generic. <laughs> right. And, right. And, neither, and neither are parents. I mean, humans are incredibly messy. I, we, we just have, you know, all kinds of things going on all the time because that's how we learn. Right. I mean, we don't learn when things are, you know, hunky dory necessarily. What we usually learn from are the things that, you know, where we trip over things and have to figure them out. Right. And things change, you know, like I've been a full-time working mom. I've been a full-time stay-at-home mom. I've been a hybrid mom, you know, working part-time from home, staying, you know, in the office part-time. My kids have been in and out of childcare. They've been in daycare. They've been after school care. They've been home by a full-time nanny, you know, like the whole spectrum over 16 years. And there wasn't any one perfect solution, but there are optimal solutions. You know, some solutions are better than others. They get better results. And usually we can tell what those better results are when our kids are talking to us and when we are, you know, and when we're having conversations with them. And that gets back to what's the number one thing we can do with our kids to raise healthy, successful adults two-way conversation. I mean, and, and that has been proven through two longitudinal studies, kids who their parents talk to them, you know, their parent, and, and it's across socioeconomic lines. It doesn't matter how much oh, money sure. you make or, you know, how much education you have or any of that kind of stuff. None of that matters. Talking to your kids regularly and, and having back and forth conversations with them that's the game changer. Well, and I know that one of the things like, and this is, you know, I'm going to just talk a little bit from the divorced parent standpoint. One of the things my kids hated was sleeping at their dad's. And I asked them in a long conversation, it was hard to get out of the kids too, what they hated over there. But most of the things they hated, Trish, once they told me the truth, I could fix. Like, Yeah, I bought a set of, and granted, I bought everything on my end and sent them over to the house. Okay. So you just suck it up that if you're paying for the money, you just pay for it and and you can always make more money. You can't always have a better relationship with your kids. Little things like I sent them over with phone chargers to keep at that house because they'd forget their phone charger, their phone would die. They don't have, they, they're, I'm an Apple household. The other house is an Android household, you know, chargers don't mix. So simple chargers. The other one was that my kids missed their blankets. And even as they got older, and so they, and they were literally, Trish, these weren't like, you know, some fancy, you know, Arabian blanket from the darkest, you know, depths of the Indies. These <laughs> right, were like, right. seriously, it was like one of them had a buffalo on it. One had a polar bear, you know, those like fleece things that you can get right, for right. like 12 bucks. So I looked at the brand I got on Amazon. I bought the same thing. And I'm like, take this over and leave it at dad's Fold it up in the corner. Just make a little pile of your stuff in your bedroom. You know, that's your stuff. Cause they were very they were very certain about how they wanted everything to look, you know, it looked like a pottery barn catalog. It was beautiful, but the kids didn't like the bedding. Wasn't comfortable, looked great. So I sent them over with these little things that gave them a piece of home. And it's no different than when you see a kid getting on an airplane and they have their pillow or they have their blanket or they have their stuffed animal. And so I got in the habit of buying two Uh, of a lot of things. And then the other thing I did too, was I bought them, I let them choose and we got their name put on it, their go bag. 
So when it was time to go to dad's, their names on it, it's blue or green, their favorite color. And that go bag wasn't used for anything else. Was it a little expensive? You know, they could have just used their backpack and a duffel. Yes, it was more expensive to do it this way. But when you try to get little special things in there, and then I could tuck a note in their go bag. And once they got the routine of the go bag and there was always the snack and I'd always put a little sneak, like a stick of gum or a, you know, like a lifesaver, something in the pocket, they knew they could count on these things and it made that transition easier. And when they came home, I always made sure I just, even if it was four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 o'clock at night, I had some chicken soup with the matzo ball, which was my kid's favorite thing. I had two bowls of it, eat it, don't eat it but you can count on the consistency and that really helps kids. So you don't have to say no, or they forgot something. You have your little bag, you have your routine and routines help kids a lot. And then you don't have to say no so much. Oh, routines are huge. And the, the studies also show that it, when kids know what's coming, it just generates so much less of the stress hormones, so much less cortisol because they know what's coming. So that's why, you know, when we're talking about being consistent, a lot of times kids will try to talk you out of your rules to see what they can get away with or whatever. But when you let down on those rules on a regular basis, you're, all you're doing is filling them with anxiety because they're getting their way for that moment, but they're losing their security because all of a sudden this boundary that they knew if they bumped into, they were going to bounce back. All of a sudden that boundary has gone. And that's, and that's why we call them boundaries. It's, it's, you know, it's like guardrails, right? <laughs> so that they know they're not going to crash and burn because they have specific things that they know are going to happen and that they can depend on. So if you, it, so if the rule is you're not going to have you know, you're not going to have dessert unless you eat your dinner. Although I will make a caveat with that. And that is if we were doing something special, we could declare it a special occasion. And then they knew that they didn't have to worry about it. And, and I think that's important too, for them to see that sometimes things change because there are special occasions and they were okay with that. But for the most part, their rules were consistent not because we're being, you know, big meanies or something, but because by having consistent rules and not using the word no so that it was a pleasant experience instead of a negative experience yep. to have those rules, then it just gave them so much more security. Because I was not a single parent and my husband, when he was home, he was great. He was just gone a lot. <laughs> You know, so, so, and they still have a good rip. And, and I think there's a male, female thing that happens anyway. Like our girls, they, they still call him for dad vice. Right. So, and they call it dad vice. They will ask him certain things like about business or investing or, you know, something with work or about a job interview, even though I could tell him a lot of that information. I'm not the one they go to. They go to dad. (laughs) Right. Because it's how the kid classifies you in their head. Right. And 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 it's not personal. They they think I'm smart. They, you know, it's not, they think I'm an intelligent person just for certain things. They feel like dad's the, dad's the go-to guy, which is fine. 
Well, and that's where like, especially in a divorce, it's okay for your kids to like a step parent and want advice on something and not from you. Like you can't be all things to all people. And one of the parents pointed this out to me and she said, well, what if so-and-so was their teacher at school? And they told you that, you know, told the kid, gave the kid that advice. And I had to admit, I'd be fine with it. I was not Ah. fine with it because of where it came from. And it's just about being mindful, you know, so that we don't all have to learn, you know, the same mistakes that I made to go, well, gee, if Trish, you know, parenting experts said it and the stepmom said the same exact thing, huh, maybe it's just good advice and it doesn't matter where it comes from. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things I work with parents a lot too, on figuring out what your background is, where your buttons are, because your buttons with your kids usually have nothing to do with your kids. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they upset you. And you're like, oh, she just knows exactly where to push my buttons. But usually those buttons are from something that happened a long time ago that, that, you know, trip your sensors, trip that amygdala, what's going on in the limbic system and, and set you off. They're your triggers. So basically your child knows where the triggers are, but they have nothing to do with the triggers. Those triggers came way before your kids came into the picture. <laughs> well, and some triggers are universal. I don't know any parent that if a kid flips them off, isn't going to have a reaction. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like some things are just universal. They're the way we're made. And I think a lot of it is about. That's a respect issue. I mean, I I don't think I've had either of my children flip me off, but I, you know, I'm sure that that has happened because a lot of times it'll depend on who they're hanging out with and maybe they have a friend that flips their parents off and or they're joking like mine did it thought he was being funny (laughs) I was horrified and you're like seriously what okay we are getting way too much into the friend zone instead of the parent child zone if you think that's okay even in a joke that's you know because your kids have lots of friends their friends come and go but yep. they only have one real set of parents. Right. So we have to be very careful to maintain that parent-child relationship until they're ready to transition when they're adults. And sometimes that's tricky because you're having a really good time with them and you don't want to tell them no. And sometimes the answer has to be no. So it just works much better to give them an alternative to tell them what they can do instead of what they can't do, what, what we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to always remember that it's more important what your kid does after you say no, or after they make a mistake, or the first time they try something. Like when my son flipped me off at the end of eighth grade, he thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. Because he said, Mom, you should have seen your face. And it probably was, you know, now looking back, it was funny. And I said, where did where did you get that from? You know, he saw it in a movie uh, and it was funny in the movie. It just wasn't funny getting out of my car in eighth grade where you're, you know, like, can you tell me what time the bus is going to come for basketball so I know what time to be here? Like, that's not yes, right. That did not work, son. (laughs) Right. But you can see, like, I could have, I could have flipped out. I could have screamed at her. I could have made it a big deal. Or I could say, wow, like, what was that? Oh, you just seen your face, mom. I'm like, where did you, 
why would you do this? And then he confided in me. He saw it in a movie and it was funny in the movie. So he thought it would be funny in the car. Okay. Learning lesson. Now, if he does it again, it's a measure of disrespect. But right. the first time, because kids do do stuff and repeat stuff they see from their friends or from movies or social media, and they think it's funny. Well, and then you explain to them, okay, I can see where that might have been funny in a movie, but a movie is not real life. Right. And I'm your mom and I'm real life. So that's, that's just not going to work. Even if you're joking, that's just not, that's just not going to work. Right. But there's the conversation, you know, like, I love that you modeled that conversation because there's the conversation that happens around no, or happens around, you know, why something is the way it is. Nobody's screaming at each other. No one's going all crazy. We're just trying to kind of fact find and go, why did this happen? Because most of the time, Trish, in my parenting experience, and I bet yours too, the kids we're thinking they were doing something right, or they didn't think it was a big deal, or they're just thinking like kids, they don't see the two steps ahead. So flipping out at them is not the right response because it it's, they didn't know. And a lot of times the kids don't know better. I used to do things my brothers and sisters didn't do because I watched the reaction. You know, when you're four or five, six down in the pecking chain and you look and you see what so-and-so got in trouble for. Okay. Note to self, do not do that. Then you see how hurt mom is when they don't give her a birthday card. Note to self, don't miss her birthday. Like, you know, but the first ones, the first one's rough. The first kid has to figure it all out. Right. That is definitely true. And well, and I think it's, it's true for so many things, things that we learn with our partners too. You know, we do something and we make a mistake the first time and, you know, they're learning mom and dad, but that's all such great training for when they are partners for somebody else someday, right? right. Just like what your mom was talking about saying, you know, you have to remember they're going to be somebody's partner someday. So, you know, teach them how to be a good partner. We love that. Well, Trish, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but our hour is up and I love the no show. And I, you know, at the end of the day, examine first how you react to no, and then look at your kids and go, Hmm, wonder where they got it from. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that true? Apples coming from apple trees. We'll be back again next week with another great show. Check out Trish at thebrainstages.com. You can go ahead and get a copy of her book. You can also look up Trish Wilkinson on any place that you found this uh, episode to find more episodes like this. I think there's four or five of them at least circulating out there with me and many, many others. You'll be glad you did. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. We've got more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you on Military Mom Talk Radio.